Love Talk Radio. And welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico. Got a great show for you tonight. As always, we're going to be starting off with uh, a very interesting round of Coach's Corner. And I've got two uh, fantastic golf professionals here with me on the panel tonight. And I'll introduce those uh, two in just a, a moment. And then a little bit later on in the show, uh, it's actually a reschedule from May 10th. Uh, unfortunately, that particular date, uh, my special guest, who's going to be on this evening, uh, was not able to, to join me. And uh, so we've rescheduled him for tonight. And, of course, I'm talking about Chris Rodell. He's the uh, author and writer of Arnold Palmer, Homespun Stories of the King, a great new book uh, that was just introduced uh, a few weeks back. And uh, he's going to be joining me on the second half. Uh, hopefully everything will go well tonight, and, uh, and he'll be on. But uh, let me just remind everybody, of course, we are live uh, every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And, of course, best way to find us is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live or simply type golf talk live up in the search key and of course the show uh, will be there front and center um, for some reason if you can't join us live not to worry uh, you can just scroll down uh, on that page and you'll find the on demand section and that's where all of the shows including tonight's show will be there in its entirety uh, in the recorded version so if you can't join us live uh, folks not to worry uh, you can tune in and listen anytime that's convenient for you. Uh, you can also uh, listen on some other great social media platforms like iTunes.com, Stitcher.com, and now, of course, TuneIn.com. And again, just type in Golf Talk Live, and that will take you to the respective page. Uh, also, don't forget to join me every Tuesday mornings uh, on the same networks uh, from, 10, or, sorry, from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Of course, I'm talking about my other program, Tuesday mornings, the Women of Golf Show, with my very good friend and co-host, uh, Cindy Miller, of course, an LPGA professional and a member of the Legends Tour. Uh, she's been off for a couple of weeks, but she's going to be back on uh, this week, uh, this Tuesday coming up. And, of course, we're going to be uh, interviewing some great guests on that program as well. So make sure you tune into that one as well. Um, also, uh, I update on social media, on Facebook, under a number of different uh, golf groups, and also on my personal page, uh, so you can find uh, who's going to be on the shows and uh, upcoming dates and so forth. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at CEO. CEO is in capital letters. I also promote through Twitter and also at LinkedIn.com under my personal page. So uh, lots of great ways to listen to the show and lots of great ways to stay connected with the shows uh, as well. So um, make sure that you, uh, you follow along and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll keep coming out with some great uh, topics and some interesting discussions. All right, I've got uh, two great guests on the Coach's Corner panel tonight. Um, first up is John Hughes. Uh, PJ Master Professional and President of the North Florida PJ Section and a recipient of the 2013 PJ of Amer America's Horton Smith Award and also a Top 30 Instructor uh, with Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, also rounding out the panel tonight is Peter Agazarian. Uh, he's a PGA and TPI uh, uh, Certified Teaching Professional with Traconic uh, Golf Club 
He's also the head men's golf coach with the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts and also the founder of Northeast Golf Performance and a member of the Proponent Group. Guys, uh, welcome to Coach's Corner on Golf Talk Live. Hi, Ted. Hi, Ted. Great to be here. All right. Well, I appreciate it, guys, and, and thanks, uh, thanks for joining me tonight again on, on Coach's Corner. All right, guys, we're going to talk a little bit about um, – I gave you just a very brief snippet, if you will, uh, before we went live, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about clinics, uh, and, of course, I'm talking about golf clinics. Uh, and then last week, as I mentioned um, with the panel, uh, Chuck Evans and Jamie Leno-Zimron, uh, we talked about playing lessons, and I had each of them sort of walk through – uh, a typical playing lesson that they might have with, with some of their students. We're going to do a little bit with you guys tonight, maybe put a few different twists on it, uh, but that'll be sort of the second half of the discussion. But I want to start out, and, and uh, John, I'm going to start with you, if you don't mind, uh, about clinics. And I want to talk about, uh, and, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, so we'll, we'll try to uh, you know, keep it uh, grounded to, to specific topics and that, but let's talk about some of the key components uh, to producing a successful golf clinic from the teaching professional standpoint. And then we want to talk about from the student standpoint, some things that they should expect from, from the clinics and some things that the uh, clinics, maybe they should be looking out for. Um, so let's start off with some of the key components, uh, maybe clinics that you've done that you found that have made a successful golf clinic. Well, thanks Ted again for having me on. It's always a pleasure being on board with you and Peter. Uh, as far as successful clinics, I think the number one thing that I really try to stress is totally understanding the people in the clinic, not just from a general sense, but from a, a more specific sense. Everybody has different reasons to play golf, and most of the people who go to clinics are are fitting into a couple of different baskets, whether it's budgetary reasons, uh, maybe they're a little shy to take a private lesson, a little bit embarrassed, or maybe they're just looking for a refresher. That's what I find to be the three biggest baskets. But even within the three biggest baskets, there's specifics there that once you dig into and understand what those specifics are, it makes it a little bit easier for the instructor to do whatever personalization possible within the framework of the clinic. Uh, most clinics are very generic uh, very vanilla, I guess is the best way to say it, uh, from a, uh, a planning standpoint of view, as far as a timing standpoint of view. And it, it has to be that way because the potential amount of people you have in a clinic, but you can still personalize so long as you're listening before, during, and after the clinic, before with maybe a player profile, maybe a telephone call, maybe an inquisitive email. Uh, but then having everybody being introduced at the beginning of the clinic to each other, sharing some information, that gets things off to a really good start for everybody to get to know one another, have them everybody understand their expectations of, of themselves individually, but what they're expecting of the clinic. And you're going to find that little nugget that's really going to create that relationship a little bit deeper for you with each and every person there versus just being at arm's length from everybody, staying in that generic frame of mind. Right. Well said. Um, and, Peter, let me ask you uh, with maybe a little bit of a different twist. You know, we've of, often seen and, and heard about a lot of different golf schools, and, and I sort of classify them a little bit differently. Golf schools tend to be 
Um, and I'm going to steal John's uh, terminology here, a little more generic. They may have a, a short game uh, golf school uh, or they might have an overall uh, golf school, but cl- clinics can be a little bit more specific. Um, is there a number? I mean, obviously, I know you've done some clinics as well at, of various levels of, of golf, uh, maybe some junior clinics. And of course, uh, for some of our, our more seasoned uh, golfers out there, but is there a number of students that, that you comfortably feel uh, is, is a good number to work with? And what are some of the key components that you like to focus on in a clinic and why? It just depends. The number of people depends definitely on the intent of the clinic. Um, you know, you always want to keep it <clears throat> at a, you know, six to seven to one ratio, just if it's a junior clinic for safety purposes. Um, if it's a more advanced clinic that you're trying to, you know, just really um, have the people be best informed, or if it's a golf school, you know, you're you're really putting on a putting on a show for a generally small group of people. I I personally keep all of my uh, golf schools very small. I like to keep them to three or four people, um, mm-hmm. um, but it really depends on the intent. You know, we, we have a, a junior clinic that we run that's very introductory. Uh, it's very fun. Um, and really there's no cap on it. We want as much participation as possible. We get, you know, sometimes 30 kids coming. Um, and at that point it's kind of all hands on deck with a professional staff. And we make sure that, you know, obviously with a junior clinic setting, it's, it's first of all safe. Um, and we want them to have fun, but we want to make sure they're leaving there with having learned at least one thing, you know, thing, something they're taking away that's going to, you know, either make them enjoy the game or help them in the long term play better. Um, you know, in an adult setting, I can't say it's much different, you know, and just like John right. said, you know, you really want to tailor things to your audience, your, you know, that's the first thing you learn about teaching or speaking is that, you know, like John said in the beginning, you get to know each other a little bit. You don't rush things. Um, you know, you help each the people there get to know each other. That way they're more comfortable. They're more likely to learn better um, or likely to make friends and play golf with each other. It's the entire intent. Um, so, you know, then you can, tailor the information, make sure they're taking away something that's important to them. Um, And I always make that very clear. I say, we're going to probably talk about a few things today. Uh, We're going to offer some options, but please just, you know, consider maybe the most important thing that you can take away from our time together. And if you frame that up front and, and, and you get them in that type of mindset where they don't feel like they need to remember all of it, um, then it can be the most productive for that individual person. Right, exactly. Uh, well said. And I, I agree with both. You know, the, the great thing about this profession, guys, is there are so many options and so many variables that you can interject into um, our day-to-day teaching. Uh, as an example, you know, if you're dealing with a specific group of businessmen, um, you may want to, in addition to specific areas, uh, and John, I'm going to throw this to you in a section to, to maybe expand a little bit. Um, you may want to interject uh, a little business golf, talking about some of the benefits um, 
of of business types and business uh, people coming to these clinics because there's a lot of advantages not only about learning how to play golf but learning how to build and develop relationships on the golf course uh, is this something that that you have also uh, maybe done with some of the clinics and, and focus specifically and targeted business people within uh, your community. That was for John. John, are you with me? Oh, I guess. Oh, there he is. I'm here. Hi, John. Yeah. You, <laughs> sorry, we got dropped. I got this. Um, John, no, I don't I know. Got, that's did my you hear fault. my? I heard the. I did. I heard the question. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I targeted clinics towards business people as the former national director of instruction for golf digest schools. That was a heavy uh, emphasis for us because a lot of corporate moguls, I'll use that term, came to us for advice on an individual basis. And we were able to turn that around into a group setting, whether it was team building, whether it was uh, sales initiations and closing deals, whether it was uh, HR issues, there's a lot of things that can be accomplished on the golf course. And from a clinician standpoint of view, it was us trying to help each one of these business people understand the right way to close the deal, the right way to uh, address certain issues of business, whether it's to a customer or a fellow employee, uh, beyond just the X's and O's of golf. Uh, I think the biggest thing that a business person can take out of those is something that I live by. I've never hired an accountant or never hired an attorney without first taking them out on the golf course. And that's normally right. the first thing I head to the pass with, with each and every one of the business people. That The way you handle yourself on the golf course yep. is going to be indicative of how you handle someone's business. And that's the very first right. thing I address individually as well as within a clinic setting. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Uh, you're exactly right. And, and I do the same thing. Um, you know, over the years, I've had a lot of people approach me. Um, years ago when I owned a, another company, I had a lot of people, of course, wanting to get my business. And at the time, you know, I was very uh, selective. Now, I always didn't always get an opportunity to necessarily play golf. Um, but we would even just uh, sometimes meet up at the course and maybe we'd be hitting golf balls and I would watch how they handle themselves. Even on the range, you can learn a lot um, in, in discussions and sometimes in, in a setting, but um, you're, you're exactly right. There's a lot of opportunities there. Um, Peter, I want to, again, I'm going to do something a little bit differently with you. Uh, I know that um, as the uh, head men's uh, coach that uh, you have obviously working with uh, some younger uh you know, future players out there. And I imagine that uh, a lot of times you'll um, pull information from what you're working on there and maybe put it in a clinic with other juniors. Um, are you specific with some of the juniors in some of your clinic? And as an example, maybe focusing on uh, more scoring or short game uh, clinics to try and help them to be able to dial in as opposed to just a general clinic where you're, uh, you know, working on, you know, fundamentals or that sort of thing. Do you get more specific uh, when you're working with uh, more uh, established players? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely, and it's very specific to the player, but, you know, I operate two different junior elite programs up here, that, you know, and it's <clears> – <throat> the conversations are very individual. Um, 
they're somewhat technical when you know you, if you need to step in and you know talk about their swing a little bit but um it's i would say we talk about emotional skills far more than anything else um cuz right. you you're dealing with anybody you know i have a competitive 12 year old that i coach all the way up to 18 college <clears throat> you're talking about kids you're talking about children who you know at best have a lot of new attention coming their way. There are people that are just strictly well-wishing them. They want them to do well. They want them to succeed um, in playing golf or school or whatever it might be, but it's new to them. It's very, very new attention. And we talk at length about it, about how we, how the player feels about it. Everybody shares. So they know they're in it together. Um, and I and I talk to the parents about it a lot, you know. And I say, you know, you know, Rick or or Sally is really doing well. There's a lot of people I can see on social that are wishing them well. It's it's all great things, but this is all brand new attention for them. And you know, right. as a mom or dad or parents, you know, it's best if you sit down with them and just ask them how they feel about it. Um, I find that to be the conversation a lot more, you know, how are they going to manage their own emotions on the golf course, obviously, but away from that, there's, there's to, to them, there's far more pressure. Um, they just mainly, I would say put on themselves because they don't want to let people down. Um, but these are all very real things that end up being discussed. Um, and a, I would say 90% of the time, Ted, it's all, all this attention is coming from with the best intentions. Um, and then there's the other 10% that you need to have a conversation about some negative attention or negative, you know, things that are going on, um, you know, in their life that's affecting their golf or whatever might need to have the conversation be. But um, when you're talking about that age group and, you know, the conversations I have with them, it's, <clears throat> far more about managing, managing their emotions, their external environment, you know, and then that ends up in turn helping how they play. So, um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think it's important uh, and, and it's key. And, and it brings to mind something interesting I, I've heard. I've heard this many times before, but somebody uh, that I was watching on TV not too long ago uh, said this, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but the general gist of the statement was that everything that happens to you, uh, 10% of it is what happens, and 90% is how you react to it. Uh, and I think that's true with everything. I think that, um, you know, obviously we have different scenarios and, and things that go on in our lives, uh, and even that out in the golf course. And really, uh, a lot of it is how we handle the situation. We might get into some trouble or a bad lie. Uh, or hit uh, some errant shots, um, but depending on how we handle or react to the situation is going to dictate how we move forward from that. So emotions uh, and feelings that play very heavy into golf much more, uh, you know, than than uh, ball striking ability. Of course, that's important too. But uh, I, you know, if you watch some of the top players, how they handle themselves on the golf course tells a lot about how they ultimately are going to end up playing. They're all going to hit some good and bad shots uh, over the course of time, uh, but it's how they mm-hmm. handle themselves on the golf course 
uh, is going to dictate whether they're going to be successful in, in closing the deal, uh, John, as you had mentioned. Um, John, I want to throw this back to you. And what I want to do this time is sort of flip the switch a little bit. We've talked a little bit about sort of our agenda, if you will, or, or our thought process in going into clinics. But let's talk a little bit about from the other side of it, from the person coming. So if I was coming to take a, a clinic uh, with either one of you, um, what should I expect from that experience? And what should I be looking for um, and, and particularly paying attention to uh, to be able to get the most out of it? Well, Peter used a great term before, intent. And not all clinics are alike. They're not built the same. Each one does have a separate intent. So you've got to take your own inventory. What are you looking to accomplish? Are you a beginner? Are you an advanced beginner? Are you a more advanced player? And you're just looking for some, some group help or group support. You've got to take that inventory and then try to match it up to what clinics are available and what they have to offer. One of the biggest uh, things we hear from a PGA standpoint of view on a national level is just that, expectations, and, and are the, is the programming of the PGA meeting the expectation of the average golfer? Right. And that's why you constantly will see these different programs thrown out. It's in an effort to try to please the masses. As an individual, you've got to take your inventory, ask questions of the instructor prior to registering for the, for the clinic. Uh, ask them what should be expected or what you should expect from them. What kind of time frame? What's the content? Are there extras being thrown in? Do I need to bring anything extra besides myself and the golf clubs? Uh, who, other, who else is going to be there? How big is the size of the clinic? Uh, how personalized is it going to get? All these add up to the perceived value of what you're going to pay for that clinic. If it's a free clinic right. or a relatively inexpensive clinic, you're going to have to expect less. And when you expect less, you're going to receive a whole lot more. But when the clinic is a little bit more costly, I run a, a derivative of Get Golf Ready that I call Play Golf Now. And it's pared down a bit from Get Golf Now, but I deliver a whole lot extra with it. And I charge a little right. bit more for it, but they get a whole lot more out of it. And I'm very keen on my side to ask the right questions so I put the right people in it. And I'm always asking them to ask me questions so they feel comfortable, so the customer, that student feels comfortable with the environment they're going to place themselves into. Remember, life's choice. Life is a game of choices. You've got to make the correct choice based on your inventory, what you're trying to accomplish, and what long-term value you're seeking to get out of each clinic you attend. Yeah, and, and that raises an interesting um I guess a hypothesis, you know, Peter, in that uh, what John's talking about is obviously um, there's going to be a lot of differences. And I think one of the things from a student's perspective, um, I mean, there's obviously different types of clinics out there, whether, again, whether it be a short game, maybe a bunker clinic, uh, all that type of thing. But with the onslaught of the information that's available out there now to the average student, I think we're finding, as, as all professions do, but the golf profession is certainly no, uh, no different, that the students, if you will, or the general public is sort of driving where their interests are and not so much coming from the other way. 
Um, so from a student's perspective, is that something that we should be bringing, that they should be bringing to the table as well and say, this is what we're interested in learning about. Um, you know, we love golf, but these areas over there are not as important maybe as they once were. So how do we find that balance as instructors and as students? Um, is that a good thing, helping to drive the industry in a, in a particular direction? Ted, was that for me? Yes, I'm sorry, Peter. I'm sorry. I thought I said Peter. My apologies. Yes, that was for you. Uh, it's right. No, I, 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 it's it's a good question. To be honest with you, it's you know there's so much information out there available. Um, you know, people, there's think about it, an unlimited an amount of information accessible to any player. You know, to what to what extent don't we have a a clinic that's just to help people weed through all of it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> true, because honestly, in a lot of clinic settings, I end up help. I end up answering questions about a YouTube video that they watched, and you know, helping the person understand what the the person, you know, the personality giving, you know putting out the content meant by X or Y, you know, it, even in private sessions, there's a lot of, a lot of time compartmentalizing, you know, the, their thoughts and all the inputs they've received. Um, so I think to some extent it's maybe falls on us to, to acknowledge the fact that there's that much out there to, and to, you know, put out a clinic where, um, you can call it, ask the coach or ask the pro and you, you make it very informal and it, you can make it whatever you want it to be as far as Costco or whatever, but make it very clear that you're a resource. You're there to answer questions, to clarify. Um, you know, you can really take it to that level of empathy for the, for the player, whatever their level might be. Um, and I think empathy might be the biggest thing we can have um, as coaches, you know, when, when you're talking to players or you're trying, you're working to help them is to have empathy as to where they're coming from. Well said. You're exactly right. Um, John, just a, a final uh, question I'm going to throw out there about, uh, about clinics. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a firm believer in having an honest uh, discussion and dialogue um, no matter sometimes, even if it's not the most popular. And I wonder, just based on what Peter just said, you know, with information available, is one of the dangers in the golf industry that things like clinics are going to become obsolete? And the reason why I ask, let me just phrase the question in such a way, because there is so much information available, good or bad, is it becoming harder and harder for us as professionals to offer some of the, the tools, if you will, of the trade that we normally have done for, for many, many years um, is hard to compete with that. And what do we need to do in order to I, a, adapt or make changes in order to uh, sort of address that particular issue? That's a great question. What you're talking about is the evolution of a clinic. Will clinics go away, become obsolete? Absolutely not simply because of the points I, I mentioned earlier, whether it's budget, uh, too embarrassed or a little bit too shy to do a private lesson, 
Those right. two are the contributing factors and, and will always have clinics. But I think what you're going to see evolving into clinics is more virtual clinics uh, where yep. an instructor is wherever in the world and you're able to log on through the Internet no matter where you are in the world and not only get and receive coaching from this particular individual, but have a two-way conversation. Uh, there's already platforms out there now. I'm using one yes. more on an individual basis right now, but I have the ability to put up to 500 people on this platform and actually do a virtual yep. clinic for next to nothing for people as far as what the costs are, not only to me, but to the, to the people attending. No, they'll never go out of, out of style. I think there'll always be a reason for it. The biggest reason is what you and Peter just alluded to. There's so much information out there. Peter and I and you are as guilty as anyone else to continuing to feed the monster. <laughs> so we, right. we have to be able to be there to, to help people digest it, understand it, and be able to regurgitate it in how they perform on the golf course. And the future of all this will be more virtual. There's, but at the end of the day, it's still a people business for us. You're still going to have to touch and feel each other and look at each other in the face from two feet away at some point to accomplish a lot of the goals that most golfers have in their mind. So past the virtual clinic, that's going to spur on private. That's probably going to spur on actual people showing up at actual golf facilities to take an actual clinic at some point, yep. but it, it's, it's going to evolve that way. And it, it already has to a certain extent. Yeah, you're exactly right. In fact, I know of a number of individuals that of course have been on, including yourself, John, um, that have been on the coach's corner panel and, and guests uh, alike that are, are already doing that now. And I think Peter, just very quickly, uh, if you want to add some thoughts to this, I, I think that, John's exactly right. I think the virtual clinic is something, uh, and a lot of it I think has to do with uh, not the fact that the student doesn't want to maybe come out uh, and do a face on uh, face to face at this particular time, but time restrictions. Uh, a lot of people are very busy; they don't have the time. One of the great uh, things about a lot of these online or virtual clinics, as John put, is most of them have the ability to either uh, join in during a live clinic or they can pay and go in and watch uh, after the fact. They may not be able to interact at that time, but they can go in and, and partake in, in some of these virtual clinics after the fact through a recorded version. So um, what are your thoughts there? Do you agree with that? And, and do you see that as part of the evolution of the next uh, uh, stage of, of golf? Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I, I think it's going to end up going um, to the extent of VR for sure. Um, at some point you'll be, sitting in your house doing with some glasses on taking a, a clinic and you'll be in a, in a VR setting. Um, hopefully I'm around for that. Cause I think it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I completely agree. It's definitely going by that way. Cause, um, people don't have time. There's yeah. I mean, the people I talk to that, you know, they make really have to put in a, a, a big effort to, to make a, you know, a put, make a clinic, put together time to do a, a program. Um, I get it. 
and I think we're definitely going to be going that way. There's some companies that are, you know, have have tried to do it, are currently doing it, um, and it's only going to get more uh, realistic and streamlined. Yeah, and, and you know, there's so many, uh, I mean, other areas in business, um, other products out there that allow you to do this already, and I think, obviously, We've seen some in the past, and, and it, as you were alluding to, Peter, it's it's going to get better and better. I think in addition to the time uh, factor, I think, as John, as you pointed out, I think cost is be- going to become an issue. I mean, it is so much less expensive to put on a virtual clinic uh, than it is to have uh, people to come out to the golf course, and now you're using a facility, and, of course, the facility um, you know, has to, to, to make a profit. So they're looking to, to you know add to their um, bottom line, if you will. So I can see the virtual clinics, as both of you have mentioned. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, I want to jump now to uh, on the second half here a little bit. And as I mentioned, we talked about this last week uh, with uh, my other guests uh, on the Coach's Corner panel. That was about playing lessons. Um, let, let's walk through a typical playing lesson, what you try to uh, – and, and, Peter, I'm going to start with you this time first, if we, uh, just to, um, in, in a matter of fairness uh, to both of you, and then, John, I'll get you to, uh, to come in. Typically, how many holes do you like to play during a playing lesson uh, or how long of a session? I mean, obviously, I know it can vary. Um, do you like to, to do with your students in order to, to get the best benefits in, 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 uh, you know, in a reasonable period of time, again, giving time restrictions? Yeah, of course. Yes, definitely time restrictions. Yeah, time restriction is 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 definitely crucial. Um, I would say uh, the in, like I said before, the intent of uh, being on the golf course together because I I do uh, part of my coaching programs is the first step is to be on the golf course together. Um, so that's yep. generally three or four holes, um, just to get a sense of you know get to know the person. Um, get to know their game, get to see, um, get to know that, you know, just to, and get to chat and see what's going to make the most sense for uh, what kind of program uh, that they want to be involved with. And then at that point we make a prior, we prioritize um, parts of their game and then we go from there. Uh, for most people, uh, they opt for a, a nine hole playing session, which is anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours. Uh, they get an mm-hmm. immense amount of that, um, generally on a one-on-one scenario. Um, and then sometimes there's competitive players that want an 18-hole playing lesson, um, and they want that experience. They 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 want to be just, you know, helped through the ebb and flow of that 18-hole round, and it's important to them. But I, I work on the golf course a, a lot. Uh, I prefer it. Um, you know, people around here see that I have a track man and they think I'm a person that's going to be set up on the range somewhere. Um, there are some days that I don't take it out at all. And I'm on and off the golf course between four and five times, um, for various periods of time. Um, just because you can have such better conversations about not just the mechanic, past the mechanics, it goes to decision-making. Um, yep. you know, addressing and even lies types of shots, um, you know, where you can play certain, uh, short game shots too, so that you, you know, 
you know, helping someone understand that they can aim away from the hole and be better off than going right at it is something you can't <laughs> talk about on a driving range. Right. Um, right. So yeah. like, like, like I said before, I just prefer it. I think it's extremely productive and people get an immense amount of value out of their time. Right. Uh, and, and I, I agree with that. I think that's, uh, and that was pretty much the, the, the gist of, of last week's conversation uh, where that was concerned. Um, John, what about you? But, but I want to add to your uh, uh, discussion a little bit as well. Uh, and that is about a, a sort of a, a pre playing lesson warm up, uh, not just warming up uh, with a few clubs, but do you like to maybe before you get out on the, on the golf course and, and go through your lesson, maybe have a pre discussion, kind of like almost like you would your pre routine as to what we're going to do and what, what they should expect out in the, on the, uh, uh, on the uh, course during your playing lesson? That is mandatory in my book to allow the person a better understanding of what to expect. I will tell them point blank. One of the points of emphasis when we're out there is it's not to fix your swing. It's to help you play smarter, help you play better with your current skills, identify Mm -hmm. skills that are deficient and, and capture some data, whether I'm bringing flight scope out there or my iPad to videotape, whatever the case may be. So yeah, Prior to going out, absolutely, it's told them what to expect. As far as warm-up, it differs based on the program. When I'm doing golf schools, it's a nine-hole on-course instruction experience, so they would have already spent two or three, maybe even four hours on the range with me in the morning, and then after lunch, go out on the golf course. So I'm going to give them a little bit of time just to get the bones and the joints and the muscles warmed back up, but I've already got a lot of good information from the morning session to have me up to, so I can understand how they may or may not play uh, within my coaching programs for the local and regional clients that I have. I include on course with those. There, there's no way out of it, no matter what your skill level. So yeah, we're warming up ahead of time. I've already seen you probably at least once, maybe twice the only deficiency I have from a data collection standpoint of view may be short game. Uh, so all these things come into, come into play. So long as a person's out there understanding, it's not about the mechanics. It's all about, uh, I'm going I'm to paraphrase what Peter said and say it my own way. Can you hit the target? Are you hitting your intended target? Yeah. Are you doing the necessary things to create a, very consistent pre-shot routine. I can't tell you how many times Peter probably can too. The the biggest thing we hear is I want to be more consistent. Well, if you're not consistent with a pre-shot, how can you be consistent right. with anything? So on course is a great place to identify that really help someone out with that particular part of their game. But to see short game under the pressure situations, that's fantastic. There's no substitute for it. When you're at the practice facility, that's basically a laboratory environment, and you can ask almost anybody to do almost anything, and they'll pretty much accomplish it there. But under the pressure of just being on the course, forget about any competition, forget about people jawing at you or, or, or trying to get in your in your <laughs> mind at all, Uh just the pressure of being there, your short game does different things that you're just not aware of. 
and that's on course. There's no substitute for short game skill assessment. It's a fantastic place to do it. And people ought to recognize, hey, I'd rather go out on the golf course, and I agree with Peter, I'm trying to do more of it because we've gotten so far away from teaching people how to play the game. We're doing a lot of coaching as far as how to ball strike and how to make swings, right. and, and we lose the we lose the intangible value of it's a game. we got to go out there and teach them how to play, and that's what On Course is about. And basically what I just spoke of here, I'm giving that information to someone at lunch, or I'm giving that information to someone in an email or a phone call prior to their arrival, or once they arrive, reiterating it. So they're fully aware and have a really clear understanding of what to expect out there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to, to sum it up. Um, you know, and, and Peter, I think there's other things, you know, in addition to their physical play that we're, we're keeping an eye for. And I think this is something that you have touched on many times here in the Coach's Corner panel. And, and that is really the emotional standpoint. Uh, things that I'm sure you're looking for is uh, nervousness, indecision, um, you know, confusion, if you will, on, on whether or not they're making good choices. So these are things that you can also help them with uh, in addition to their physical side of their game is how do they handle pressure situations out in the golf course? Because as John just pointed out, uh, you know, we can pretty much get them to stand on their head and, and you know, tap their toes three times and, and, uh, and hit just about any shot we want uh, on the practice tee. But when they get out in the golf course and suddenly they're faced with a downhill lie or a side hill lie, uh, or, uh, you know, a plug lie in a bunker, um, you know, all bets are off. So are these some of the things that you're looking for, as I mentioned, uh, on the emotional side, indecision and, and inconsistency with their thought process? Absolutely. Um, you know, and off, right off the bat, Ted, that ends up happening is that, um, especially if it's a person that's coming to me the first time and we're going on the golf course, um, there's a nervousness level of being out there with me. Um, right. You know, that they, I work really hard in the first time, you know, our initial conversation before we tee off the first hole to let them know that, you know, I'm here for them to, sh- they, to get them to relax as much as possible. Um, <clears throat> but also yep. when it comes to being on the golf course with people, I I encourage people to make decisions based on confidence rather than yes. what they feel is what they should do. There's this, there's, that's the biggest thing that I see often. Most often is that people, <clears throat> you know, they'll, and I'm, John's touched on this, the, how we've been on together. They have 200 and, you know, 30 yards to the hole. They don't have a single club that can get them there but they feel like they need and they need to pull out a three wood and hit it off the deck <laughs> when they have absolutely right. no confidence with that shot whatsoever. So really I, I may, I frame that up front and any, and whether they've, oh, they're in one of my coaching programs and this is all part of the process or not. I, I make it very clear up front that, you know, we're here to really, you know, what's your favorite club? What's do you have a favorite yardage you like to play from? Let's let's you know instead of just hitting whatever club goes the longest, why don't we hit club X so that you have your favorite yardage into the club, even if it's laying back a little bit, you know, 
Mm-hmm. It's so if if they can start playing in at a more confident place rather than uh, what they feel like they should do or someone's projected on them or to keep up with the people they're playing with or against, uh, they can play play much better without changing a whole lot. And you know, but once they realize that, they're a little more relaxed. They feel like they can they can make better shots and and end up enjoying it and score better. Right, right, exactly. Now, the final thing that I, I want to talk a little bit about is sort of the post discussion uh, or review, if you will, after the the uh, playing lesson has taken part. Uh, John, I'm going to go back to you, and then and then Peter, I'll let you uh, give your final thoughts as well. Um, but this is something that obviously uh, is important after we've taken them on the course, and you know whether it's three or nine holes that we have a post discussion or review of what's taken place. And then also, I think it's equally important, um, maybe and and uh, feel free to agree or disagree, but maybe give them an, an assignment that they can take away and work on. Um, what are your thoughts there, John? What do you typically like to do uh, after a playing lesson? And do you also uh, agree with maybe giving them an assignment based on your observations of that uh, particular playing lesson? Uh, a, B, C, D, and all of the above. Ted, it's, <laughs> what's funny is when you come off the course, when you come off that last hole, and I, I do several variations of it, whether it's two holes, four holes, nine holes, one hole with a clinic where everybody's playing uh, a captain's choice and there could be eight people out there doing it, everybody to a person's eyes are just wide open. They're absolutely enamored in the self-discovery that, that just transpired. So to, to capture that moment, I am always discussing with them throughout and, and summarizing at the end what did you learn out there today? What what was new? What was different? Uh, how would you go about playing differently the next time you're out there? What did you discover that you didn't know about yourself as a golfer and or as a person? Uh, which goes to Peter's um, emotional intelligence and, and emotional control on the golf course. There's there's so much out there. It's you, you try to hit three or four big time bullets that they can retain they will actually make, in a a lot of instances, their own homework assignment. Hey, I I really need to work on this. When can we schedule the next lesson to work on this? Or what are some drills I can do between now and the next time I see you that not only identifies this skill but strengthens this skill? So it absolutely, just like anything you would do, you want to summarize it, you want to put it, in its, in its rightful place with some realistic expectations, not lofty ones. And that rare occasion, that less than 5% occasion where someone has come off the course, they've had that bad day. They just haven't performed up to what they wanted to, whether it's the nervousness being with a pro or they, they, they had something to show off and it didn't happen that day. There's still the flip side of the coin from a positive standpoint of view that I try to pull out, I have them recognized so they can walk away a little bit more eyes wide open versus down on themselves. On course is a, is a cure-all 
I think, in a lot of senses uh, and in a lot of ways, where if one thing's not quite right, you can start working on what is going right and focus on solely that aspect and really come away with a a very positive experience from both ends, from my end as a coach and from their end as a student. Yeah, and and, and some excellent points again, John. Thank you. Um, you know, something, uh, Peter, that, that um, you, you touched on, that, that one of the things that I like to do um, during a playing lesson is I like to give um, the students an opportunity. I want them to play uh, a whole, if you will, as they normally would play it before I interject any thoughts or, or ask any specific questions. And the scenario that you gave just a moment ago, which we've all seen, I guarantee it, is somebody that trying to hit an unrealistic shot, um, you know, as you pointed out, you know, they're 230 yards from the green and their thought process is, you know, to take out that three wood and hit it off the deck, um, knowing that they don't have the confidence or maybe even the skill ability. So in your post review, um, giving that sort of scenario and and others that you may have come across in your post review uh, or follow up after a playing lesson, um, we obviously want it to be uh, positive. We don't want to be hitting with all the, the, the don'ts that they shouldn't be doing, but it is important to point some of those things out. How do you find balance when you're doing that, and do you also try to have them take away not just things that they've learned, but things that maybe they can work on uh, before the next time? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like John said, all of the, all of the above, you know, it's, it's interesting because you you know you have somebody that's doing this you know an on course uh session for the first time and they say, "Well, what's this about?" <laughs> and you say, "This is about yeah. you." And um and yeah, I've I've written you know, I I I just like email follow-ups because it's there. Um people have it right on their phone, they can refer right back to it. Um and yeah, whatever we discuss out there is going to be in it you know, two, three major bullet points and, and I'll, I'll put in capital letters. Do not, you know, if someone pulls out a three wood from two thirty, right. <laughs> I'm putting in right. capital letters. Do not hit three wood from two thirty. You know, like it's, it's just, you know, if, if you point it out and you give them an alternative on how to play that, they're going to appreciate that because it's, they're, you're basically taking into account their their ability to hit each shot, their own personal preference on what yardage they like, um, and then they it, it makes it gives them the permission to not hit that shot because a lot of times they feel like they have to because that's what they see on TV, and we have that whole conversation, right. you know, and yeah, that's. To go back to what I said earlier, that what they can do is is sometimes not obvious to them. They feel like they should, they have to hit the the shot they should. Right, and I think uh, well said, Peter. I, I think too that something that that a lot of our, our club golfers, particularly out there uh, that that are listening, need to take into consideration and really think about this in, in this day and age we really want them to focus on playing their own game. Uh, I think part of the, and, and again, I'm going to blame the guys here 
more so than the girls. I think the, the girls, uh, and I'm talking about students here, uh, tend to be a little bit more uh, open-minded. But, you know, you get uh, guys uh, in a playing lesson or, or uh, sorry, in a, in a, you know, in a foursome, and one player that maybe is a little bit more accomplished uh, pulls out a long iron or pulls out the three wood, and he's going to go for it. So everybody feels like they, you know, that peer pressure that they've got to do it as well. And we obviously want our players to be able to, to play their own game. And our job as instructors and coaches, obviously, is to present them with options. You know, instead of taking that club out here, here's another option or even two options um, that you may want to consider. Because ultimately, what we, guys, what we want to do at the end of the day is it's not just all about learning to hit the ball better, but learning how to score better. So that when they go out there, uh, instead of, you know, struggling to break 100, uh, maybe now they're going to break 90 for the first time, or maybe some of the players that are a little bit better, they might be able to break 80. Um, and, and this is really what we're trying to get at here is to help them go out and improve as they go along. Um, you know, for too long, we've seen many, many players in the stats, you know, don't lie. Handicaps haven't gone down very much over the last few decades. And part of that reason is, uh, is the unreasonable and unrealistic expectations that a lot of golfers put on themselves. And I think we're a little bit to blame for that um, because, as John, you pointed out, uh, we need to start tailoring our clinics a little bit more away from just learning how to hit the ball well but learning how to play on the golf course. And that's really what the playing lessons are all about. Um, Guys, that's all the time we have on uh, the Coach's Corner panel tonight. Uh, I've got to get ready for uh, next guest. But as always, I want to give you guys an opportunity to uh, reach out to the listeners and and let them know how they can reach out to you. So, um, John, I'm going to let you go first and then Peter. Sure. Again, Peter, great to be with you. It seems like every second Thursday of the month we're together on Coach's Corner. It's a thrill and a pleasure. I appreciate the the things I learned from you and hope your uh, playing recently will uh, take a seed and grow for you. I know that's always exciting to jump back into the playing arena. From a John Hughes golf standpoint of view, just add a hashtag, add a at sign in front of it, an ampersand in front of it, and that's me, johnhughesgolf.com is the webpage. Um, I'm beginning to roll out some summer specials. Uh, one of them is the, as I mentioned before, Play Golf Now. Uh, you can find that information on my website and actually register online. Uh, a lot of other things going on, but the two biggest things, if you want some follow-up information, is to call me, 407 407- Eight five two eight five four seven, or email me john at johnhughesgolf.com and look for in about six minutes my monthly video tip uh you can find that on youtube it'll be announced through social media and look for every third thursday my blog tip of the month a, a regular thing i'm doing and hopefully by next month i'll have a couple other things to promote perfect um as always john it's a pleasure uh peter go ahead yeah, John, likewise, it's, it's always great to be on with you. Uh, you're right, it seems like we're here together quite a bit, but we're always learning from you. And <laughs> I think it's get, getting back into the competitive thing is always great. I just like to test myself, and um, but a lot of fun. Um, but people can reach me at um, on social. I'm at Daily Golf Coach. Um, my website is uh, gogolfcoach.com. And um, if you have any questions, if you go to the website. You can message me right in the lower right-hand corner. 
and I'm happy to just reach back out to you and uh, pretty much immediately and whatever I can do to help, um, please let me know. Um, if you would like to come visit Western Massachusetts, it is absolutely beautiful this time of year. Um, um, the facility, Taconic Golf Club, is absolutely stunning. Great views. Um, uh, so if you'd like to do that, please reach out. Um, and uh, my email and, and phone are right on the website as well. But thanks so much, Ted, and uh, great to be on with you. Uh, well, perfect. And, uh, and and Peter and John, as always, thank you very much for giving of your time and spending uh, another great uh, first half of the show on Coach's Corner panel. It's always uh, interesting to have you guys and get your perspectives on how we can help some of our fellow golfers out there. So, guys, have a great uh, week and and uh, and weekend. Enjoy uh, this week's uh, U.S. Open. I think it's going to be an exciting one, so enjoy uh, watching it uh, on the weekend. Thanks, guys. I'll see you next time. Thanks, Ted. Have a great one. You too, guys. All right, that was my uh, very special guests on the Coach's Corner panel, John Hughes and Peter Egazarian, uh, two great golf professionals. Uh, and uh, as they just uh, pointed out, you can uh, check them out on all sorts of uh, different areas on social media. And uh, a couple of great professionals always enjoy having them on the Coach's Corner panel. All right, I'm very excited uh, tonight to have uh, my next guest on here. He's, uh, of course, my interview guest and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He was originally uh, going to be on back in May, and unfortunately some things uh, came up and he wasn't able to join me. So we rescheduled, and I've got him here tonight, and I'm very excited uh, for a number of reasons. But let me just tell you a little bit about him, and then I'll bring him on the show. Uh, my very special guest this evening, of course, is Chris Rodell. Uh, he's an author and writer of uh, a new great book called Arnold Palmer, Homespun Stories of the King. Uh, his writing has appeared in uh, several um, very prestigious publications, including Sports Illustrated, Esquire, Men's Health, uh, Golf, and, of course, Arnold Palmer's uh, Kingdom Magazine. Uh, in Arnold Palmer, Homespun Stories of the King, which, of course, is his latest book, uh, uh, published by Triumph Books, uh, Latrobe, a Pennsylvania resident and personal friend of uh, Palmer's, Chris Rodell, offers a new take on the legendary figure. Uh, drawing in more than 100 interviews and conducted over decades of acquaintance, uh, Rodell delves in Palmer's character away from the game, examining Palmer's relationship to his hometown and its people. Uh, the insights and anecdotes showcase a different side of Palmer uh, than most of us are used to seeing, uh, giving fans a glimpse of the king passing up his throne for a bar stool, if you will, and a Magnolia Lane for Main Street and the big stage for small towns. So let me uh, welcome my very special guest this evening, uh, Chris Rodell. Hi, Good evening, Chris, and welcome to Golf Talk. I'm doing very well. Welcome to Golf Talk Live. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, it's it's my honor to have you here. Um, I, I want to start out. I think, Chris, uh, before we get into the book, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit. We're not gonna give away too much of the book, obviously, because we want people to go out and and uh, and get one in their hot little hands. Uh, and it's it, by the way, it's a fantastic read. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah, and thank you. Yeah, thank you for uh, for uh, having a copy sent out. Uh, I want to talk about uh, a couple of things, and then we'll get into a little bit about the book. Um, talk about the first time that you met with Arnold Palmer. Um, first of all, how did you meet, and what were your impressions? Um, were they similar to what you knew about him from what you'd seen and read or heard? Um, tell us a little bit about that first meeting. Well, there's, there's kind of several stages to that. One, I met him very briefly at the driving range at Laurel Valley. I was on assignment for Golf Magazine doing a story about golfers' first holes in one. 
And uh, he was carrying his own bag to the parking lot, which was kind of unusual for any golfer there. And uh, I went up to him <laughs> and I said, he just has a kind of a twinkle in his eye. And, you know, when he greets you with that warm thumbs up and that, and I said, do you have time for some questions? He said, sure, go ahead. And so I said, uh, what, which, which mattered more to you, your first hole in one or your first kiss? And uh, I, I realized then, you know, how much he loved that playful approach like that. And he said, he's, oh, the first kiss. Right. And I said, what? Well, no, he said the first hole in one. And I said, why is that? He goes, it just meant so much more to me. <laughs> but then there was the, the other time that I had, I was privileged to sit down with him. The first sit-down interview, I was very nervous. And uh, I said to him, I, I, it was about his, his dog Mulligan. And I said, what's an old rule stickler like you doing with a Mulligan? And I was, he was right in the middle of signing autographs. He spent about three hours each and every day signing autographs and uh, mailing them around the country at his own expense. And uh, I said, he said, he goes, well, he goes, there's nothing wrong with a mulligan. He goes, we have a mulligan at the first hole here every day. Anybody's allowed to take a mulligan on number one. And so uh, I said, is, is mulligan a good on-course dog? And he said, no, he's lousy. And I said, why is that? He goes, probably because uh, he, he takes the, chases after the balls and slobbers them up. And I said, how did he learn that? And he said, he goes, well, I spend about a day, half hour every day out back here with a pitching wedge and a tennis ball. And I hit it, and the, the dog chases it. And I, I said, boy, I'd really like to see that. And he goes, come on. He put the pen down, and then we were like two kids playing hooky. You know, and I realized how much right. just there was thing. You know, he just loved that. But then the, the one that really kind of broke the ice for me with him was when uh, I started doing the Q&As for Kingdom Magazine. And these were like, they, they weren't like the quick 10-minute interviews. They were like hour-long sit-downs that had freedom to talk about everything. There was golf aviation, history, and uh, life, in, in essence. And I said I was always haunted by the ghost of my father when I would go in there, and I, he was saying, you be proper, don't be a smart aleck, don't swear, be respectful, <laughs> this is Arnold Palmer. And so I said, I go, right. Mr. Palmer, I want you to know how much I enjoy hearing your his historic aspects of all these great events. And he said, and I want you to know how much I enjoy you coming here blowing so much sweet smoke up my posterior, let's say. So that's kind of like the icebreaker that really brought down the barriers. And I realized he was just like the guys that I would joke around with in the, in the local bars. And he was, he was no different from these regular guys that, that would fix your furnace and work on your car. And, you know, he liked a good joke and liked to laugh and, and never, ever took himself so seriously. You know, he, he always kind of didn't like being called the king because he said, he goes, nobody's the king. He goes, golf is bigger than that. But he was just a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that impressed me, and you've just touched on it, about Arnold Palmer, and I think this is why, uh, Chris, that he was so beloved, and I'm going to ask you that question in a second, but um, is yeah. the fact that he was just uh, sort of a regular Joe, and, that, and that's really what, what prompted the, the Arnie's army. Why do you think, based on, on, on your you know, time getting to know him, and obviously the fact that you're, you're from the same area, why do you think he was so loved by so many people? I, I think it was because he was – there's the Arnold Palmer that died worth $800 million. But the Arnold Palmer who lived acted like just every other guy. And the things – the way he lived, anybody could live like. I say that only a handful of golfers on the whole planet will never know what it's like to golf like Arnold Palmer. But every single one of us could live like Arnold Palmer. We could be charitable. We could be yeah. gracious. We could be bold. We can be playful. We can treat the guy that works on our car the same as we treat the guy that works on our heart. You know, he had no barriers as far as 
status with anyone. He treated every single person the same. And it was fun to see him revel in talking with the guys that work in the clubhouse. You know, he treated them just the same as he would a CEO from uh, Marriott or anywhere like that. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that brings me really to my next question is, you know, Arnold obviously had, um, again, whether it be the CEO from Marriott or even uh, several presidents uh, at, uh, in yeah. his day that he had the honor and pleasure of meeting, but again, treated them uh, certainly cordial in, in, in certain situations. Okay. Obviously, he had to, to be respectful uh, based on their positions, but at the same time, they were just regular people in his eyes. Um, and I think that was part of the appeal, and you're exactly right. You know, obviously, Arnie liked to, to fly. He had a, a private jet that he enjoyed flying and, and, um, and, and piloting. Uh, I think just as much, you may know this better, but just as much as golf. Correct. But, You're absolutely correct. Right. But as far as the people, who impressed him? I mean, again, he met all kinds of very famous, very well-to-do people. But was there anybody that really impressed him? Not necessarily individual, but the type of person that impressed him the most. Uh, I think he would get most gooey over anybody in the military or, or police and law enforcement. You know, he had a real soft spot right. for those guys, women that are on the line out there, and he would go way out of his way to make them feel at home and and uh, happy and, and make them proud and let them know how much he they meant to him. You know, and that, that I think, is, is was, was everybody will say that, the military guys and the law enforcement. He took He would go out of his way to show them every courtesy he could. Yeah, and I think part of that – um, Chris, and, and you may agree with this, is I think that the fact that they were willing to serve others with not only their lives in some cases, um, they were certainly many cases had to risk their lives uh, in, in both the case of military and, and law enforcement, but they were yeah. in service of others. And that was something that I believe Arnold, um, again, based on the person, I mean, obviously I never had the pleasure of meeting him face to face as you have done. Um, yeah. But just over the years, getting to watch him, I mean, he and Nicholas and, and that generation is who I grew up watching golf. Uh, and it was yeah. just the way, you know, I think the thing to me that differentiated him, and, and again, I mean, no disrespect to any of the other players, uh, both past and, and there, is he was a regular guy. Um, yeah. And, you know, he was, like you said, he could be like an uncle that came over to visit, yeah. to shoot the bull with you. Um but he just had a, a great golf game, uh, you know, to be envied. But he didn't care about that. He didn't sit there, and it wasn't, you know, I'm up here and you're down there. You, he met you eye-to-eye, face-to-face, as though you were somebody yeah. special. He treated you like somebody special. And that's what I've heard many, many times people say, and I'm sure that's some of the feedback and some of the commentary that you've gotten yeah. from putting this book together. Yeah, that's true. You know, like I was impressed by – uh, when I got the contract for the book, I, I and, and I love this about living in a small town, I called the editor up of the Latro Bulletin and said, I'm doing a book about Arnold Palmer. I want to get the best Arnold Palmer stories. He said, how about this? You write it and we'll put it on our front page. So I wrote my own story and I said, I want to hear your best Arnold Palmer stories. And I put my phone number and my email address and then I just sat down and typed what they said. You know, people would call up with these great stories and some of them were so minor but it just showed how much of an impact he made on him. One sweet woman said she remembered the time that they were both getting contact lenses at the same time, and he stopped to talk for her with about 15 minutes. And it just made such an impression on her that he would do this. 
And uh, then there's stories like the, the one friend of mine, he was a bartender at one of the bars, and he said he goes into the Dine Eagle, the local grocery store, and he sees Arnold Palmer with a friend of his. And he says, Mr. Palmer, we've never met, but your wife gets your dog groomed at my uh, wife's place. And so they have this small town connection. And Arnold Palmer thinks he's there to play the lottery. So he says, he goes, you're here to play the lottery? Let's play the lottery together. We'll split what we win. He goes, give me 20 bucks. So the guy said, he goes, I reach into my, my wallet, and all I have is $20. And I give my last $20 to Arnold Palmer, who at the time was worth about $500 million. So they bought $40 wow. worth. Of, they didn't win a thing. And Arnold said, he's, oh, well, you win some, you lose some. And the guy said, yeah, you win a hell of a lot more than I have. <laughs> but I love those stories, you know, that you're in a giant eagle up to pick up some milk and some pretzels. You run into Arnold Palmer and you have a chance to win, you know, $200 million on the lottery with Arnold Palmer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what a story that would have made, uh, especially oh if they had a one, even, even, you know, yeah. I mean, that would be something special. Um, yeah. You know, Chris, some, something, something else that, that always – um, impressed me was, and you touched on this a few moments ago, was his ability to and willingness to reach out. I mean, one of the complaints that I've heard, uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of interviewing a number of uh, golf professionals. In fact, I interviewed the, the late uh, Billy Casper, who was also yeah. very humble uh, in his, uh, not only his beginnings, but throughout his career. But there's a, a, a disconnect between a lot of the today's players and the players of Palmer's generation. One thing that stood out about Arnold Palmer is the fact his willingness to connect with his audience and with his fan base. And yeah. as you touched on, he would, you know, spend several hours a day, um, not only doing autographs, but responding to, to letters that he received personally. Talk a little bit about that. Why was that so important to him? Well, I said it was like today we have social media with our eyes closed. He was social media when it was being social and looking people in the eye and giving them a firm handshake. He didn't do it because he knew that someday they'd be customers and maybe buy Cadillacs or his uh, dry cleaning business at the time. He did it because that's the right. way he was raised. to treat everybody with kindness. One of the things I really loved, and this is in the book, was uh, mm. they found two months after his death, they found a letter in his desk. And uh, it was to some people that had brought him some peaches from York, Pennsylvania. They were relative strangers. But his last act before he was taken to the hospital where he died was to write a letter to some strangers thanking them for peaches. It wasn't a letter saying, let's buy this, this uh, property. Let's sue this guy. It was just a humble gesture. And that letter will be handed down generation after generation to these farmers up there. And it'll be something to yep. treasure forever. And that, he, knew how, he knew how to change the world. It, you know, you don't do a text or something like that. You send an actual letter, and you put your signature on it so that people can read it. And he did that. Like I said, he did that about three hours a day. And if he skipped a day, the pile didn't get shorter. It just doubled. You know, he had six hours the next day he'd have to do. He's the only golfer that, that didn't have, like, back pains. He had writer's cramp. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and justifiably so. I mean, uh, I know yeah. – from from many yeah from many of of the interviews uh, that I've seen on the Golf Channel and we'll talk about that here in just a second as well, um, you know there were always references to the numerous letters that he would write and that was the the interesting thing too was uh, and, and again things may have changed a little bit as he he got uh, in his later uh, years and 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 health issues uh, struck but you know he didn't just say well 
here's so-and-so, I'm going to dictate a letter to you. He hand-wrote yeah. uh, those, those letters. Um, he yeah. believed in personally, not just handing it off to you know, a, a, a plethora of secretaries or, or somebody else to respond to. He took the time himself to respond individually. And that also says a lot about his character, correct? Oh, correct. And, uh, you know, he would do it for – there were so many instances of letters he would write to CEOs or uh, there's one from a, a golf – to a golf coach. He wrote a letter to a golf coach on behalf of a, a, a kid that was playing on the high school golf team. He said he's an outstanding player and person. I would hope you would consider him for a scholarship. And the coach got this letter, and he told me he was at High Point College in North Carolina. And he said uh, – he goes, I got this letter. It had Arnold Palmer on the return address. I couldn't believe it. I almost didn't want to open it. He said, I opened it, and it said, please hire, you know, please bring this kid in for a scholarship. I don't think he'll regret it. I said, what did you do? He goes, I did what Arnold Palmer told me to do. You know, he just was so <laughs> blown away to get this letter. But he, he would do that. He, would, he got one guy a job at um, Pennzoil when the kid was, like, out of school, and he'd been a caddy. He'd been a, a, a favorite caddy of his. And he said, I, I would hope you guys would give consideration to hiring this guy. The guy had, has just concluded a 40-year career with Pennzoil where he had hired about six other people that he knew from Latrobe, and it was all on the basis of that letter. And the letter, he said, he, I go, do you still have the letter? He said, no, the boss kept it. And he said, he goes, he wished he'd had it, but the boss got the letter, and he said, no, I'm keeping this for me. So, Right. <laughs> you know, it, it just, again, goes to show the generosity um, of Arnold Palmer, willing to, to reach out to, uh, and, you know, to common folk, if you will, which he considered himself to be, regardless of, oh, yeah. of whatever yeah. was in, you know, however many zeros were in his bank account, uh, Arnold considered himself to be um, one of, just one of the people uh, who had certainly yeah. um, many fortunate things happened to him over his time, um, but he never forgot where he came from, and he, and he truly understood that. Let's talk a little bit about the Golf Channel, because you referenced this. Obviously, you've got a chapter uh, to that. What was his thought process in behind uh, you know, starting the Golf Channel? Why did he want to do that, from, from your understanding? Well, I, I, I think on so many of these great investments he had, he was just acting on gut instinct. I remember he said, uh, somebody said, who's going to want to watch golf 24 hours a day? And he said, I would. And so he, he knew that there would be an interest for a golf nut like him. And he thought there was a lot of people out there that would do it. And uh, it grew into one of the most successful cable television channels ever. And uh, it was the same right. way with the Arizona Tea. You know, he said, uh, somebody came in and said, we'd like to make this based on that drink, the Arnold Palmer that you made. And he goes, okay. And I just read in Fortune magazine last year that made $40 million for the Palmer estate. So it's still wow. that brand is so successful that it that is continuing posthumously. Yeah, let me tell you, it's a great drink too. I love it. Um, it is. So thank it you, is. Uh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, a, a thumbs up to you, Arnie, for that. Um, yeah. You know, he had some. I remember, as I said, obviously as a youngster, much of this happened. Uh, I'm I'm 54 now, so I'm. You know, I'm slowly climbing the ladder myself. I've still got many years hopefully left. But you know, I I'm one long ahead of you. Yeah, I right. (laughs) I remember seeing uh, Arnold in a lot of commercials over the years, and uh, you know, I'll be the first to admit I'm not a big fan of celebrity endorsements, but his there was just something about Arnold Palmer that 
I don't care what he was selling. You wanted to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. What was what was a, it about the message? Yeah, what I was going to say is, what about the message? Do you think it was? I mean, I, I mean, he sold a lot of things. Was it just the fact that people knew and understood that he was just a genuine person? Is that you think was was sort of the the caveat? Because uh, yeah, you know, I, I think it's just shown through. You know, you could see in the way he played golf. You know that he was relaxed and he was charging and. Uh, he just had, I like, there's a quote from Kirk Douglas, who was a very charismatic actor. And they asked him, they said, right. who's the most charismatic man you've ever seen? And he said, it wasn't Ronald Reagan. It wasn't John Wayne. It wasn't Frank Sinatra. He goes, it's Arnold Palmer. He goes, nobody has the charisma oh, yeah. that Arnold Palmer had. And that's coming from Frank, from uh, Kirk, Kirk Douglas. So and I, I think right. that kind of a people can't be explained. I like the, the story in there about the dentist, one of my favorite stories. In there, and this eventually involves his smile, but... This dentist was a 13-year-old boy. He saw Arnold Palmer at a uh, exhibition, and he said he had so much charisma. He goes, I just wanted to grow up to be just like him. And uh, three years later, he became friends with Arnold Palmer's daughter, but he didn't make the connection because there was numerous Palmers in the neighborhood. And so he went to the door and knocked right. on the door of his friend Amy Palmer's house, and he said, Arnold Palmer answered the door, and he said, I couldn't figure out what this professional golfer was doing in my friend's house. And so he just was like discombobulated by that. But then four years after that, Arnold Palmer wrote him a letter for a scholarship at dental school. He got that. Uh, Three years after that, he became Arnold Palmer's dentist, and Arnold Palmer asked him to golf together. And he spent the last 30 years of of Arnold Palmer's life being his regular golf buddy. So he went from this this boy who grew up idolizing him. And and the, the anecdote I like is he said, when Winnie Palmer died in 1998, he said, he could see Arnold Palmer was, you know, frustrated and, and just being pulled in so many directions. He said, Arnold, get in the cart. He said, I drove him out to the farthest part of the golf course, and together we put our arms around each other and wept. And I just love that story of the boy, the local boy who was 13 years old, crying in the arms of his idol all these years later. Now, to get back to what you yep. said about what made tell, Arnold Palmer was saying as a patient, he said, he goes, do you think we should do something to whiten my teeth? He goes, I'm, I'm not happy with how dingy my smile has become. And the dentist said, he goes, Arnold, that is one of the most popular smiles on the planet. He goes, people <laughs> trust that smile, and it sells so many things. He goes, we are not touching that smile. <laughs> right. <laughs> Words to live by. Yeah, I, right. I, I agree. You know, you know, there was just something about him, and, and, and as I alluded to earlier, you know, Early on in, in his career, of course, um, he had a, a tremendous amount of success, and he was also instrumental not only in the Golf Channel but pre-Golf Channel in really bringing televi- or golf to television. I mean, oh, yeah. it was Arnold Palmer that really started that movement, if you will, and, of course, the onslaught of Arnie's Army. Um, and I'm sure you've yeah. had an opportunity, uh, not just the residents of Latrobe, but but people that – followed Arnie, if you will, to have a chance to talk uh, with a few of those. Uh, maybe share a story or two of, of people that watched him play on the golf course and what their responses were. Well, he was just, uh, you know, they always talk about how the ball flew differently, you know, that it had a different trajectory. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing this when I was about <clears throat> 10 at Oakmont in 1978, I think it was, at the PGA at Oakmont. And uh, my dad, you know, was following him every step of the way. 
And I remember seeing the ball, it would start out really low, like about 50 yards off, you know, about 50 feet off the ground. And then it would get about 150 yards out there and just take off like something you'd see off a, a flight of a uh, aircraft carrier. And so a lot of people right. would, would mention that. But, but these same people from all over the country always talked about his magnetism and how he would look everybody in the eye. There's so many great stories about when he was uh, after 9-11, the uh, tournament was played at the Pennsylvania Classic was being played at Laurel Valley, not far from our home here. And they had to cancel it after 9-11, and they moved it two weeks later. And you remember Flight 93 happened not far from here in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Right. And right. there was like about 100 people in the, in the uh, galleries watching him tee off. On, on the fifth hole, and every hole that I saw him on, and these people told me, they said, he made eye contact with every single person in that crowd. Like, he took it on himself to convey strength and and uh, perseverance, you know, that we were going to get through this. And he just did that on the tee, you know. He, he made eye contact with people. He, he wasn't caring about his game that much, and, you know, he just knew that he, he could help people carry on and during this tough time. And he could read the mood of the public really well. And I think that's something that never failed him. And that's, that's the kind of things that people would tell over and over again, too. Yeah, and, and, and you know, there were other parts. I mean, obviously, he had a lot of other business interests in that. And, and obviously, one of them was his golf course design, um, which there are, of course, many uh, literally around the globe. Um, that was yeah. also something that he, he enjoyed a lot. And it wasn't, again, just – it wasn't because of the money. He just enjoyed being around the game. Um, yeah, and he obviously had a lot of uh, a great team that worked with and for him. Oh yeah. What uh, what did some of what did some of them maybe that you've talked to have to say about being in that environment with Arnie? Well, you know, everybody uh, I think comes at it like I did. You know, you have this reverence, and it you have to get over that because you can't function if you're treated, treating him like that because he he breaks it down right away. And uh, some of those people right. said. You know, the first time I met him, I was kind of quaking in my shoes. And then he told a little joke and, you know, put me right at ease. And <laughs> and, and he right. could tell, you know, he flattered them, too. He said, you know, this is a mutual love of ours. We're, we're going to make some great golf courses together. And uh, his motivation for that was he just loved spreading the game around and, and watching it grow. And uh, one of the last questions I asked him was, do you believe there's golf in heaven? And he said, oh, yeah. He goes, I'm sure there is. There's probably a Hogan and and Nelson are playing up there right now. And then he started breaking it down into what the courses would look like, like the golf course designer that he was. He said, because there's probably some clouds for hazards, and then you've probably got angels around the gallery <laughs> and playing their harps. And so, But he, he, he really reveled in, in designing golf courses. It was a, a passion of his. And some of those golf courses are outstanding, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and he was instrumental. It's funny recently because I was, I was actually through there not too long ago, but one of the courses that he was involved with, of course, is in central Florida in the villages. Uh, and of course, uh, yeah. he was, you know, and, and this, um, just to sidestep for just a second, um, I watched yeah. a great video, uh, YouTube video recently about the villages. And one of the, the, who happens to also be a residence there uh, is Nancy Lopez. And of course she has yeah. one of the other great uh, courses there. And one of the interesting things that she said in that video was about how generous and giving Arnold Palmer was in helping her with her design, even though she put her own yeah. earmarks on it. 
he was very helpful to her. So it just goes to show you the type of individual that he was. That he was reaching out to anybody, um, and certainly not trying to suggest that Nancy Lopez is anybody, but because um, right. she yeah. was well accomplished herself. But you know what I'm saying. Um, she was a yeah. little bit nervous, she said in the video, about you know coming up with this championship golf course, and he sort of helped put her some final brush strokes, if you will, to help it be successful yeah. as well. So, you know, he, he, he didn't just do it for his own self-interest. He did it to help other people, and, and that was something very apparent. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was let me go to the beginning. That. Yeah, let me go to the beginning of the book, because uh, the foreword was written yeah. by Gary Player. Um, you obviously, yeah. uh, Gary was a, was a huge fan and supporter of, of um, Arnold Palmer over the years, always spoke very kindly of him. Um, yeah. What was the discussion that you had with him to do the forward? Well, I, I told him I was doing this book, and I said it centers on small-town America can still produce men like Arnold Palmer and Fred Rogers, who is also from La Trobe. You know, the, 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 it's in the hearts of these people, right. even in divisive times, that we can pull together. And uh, there's people coming out of our neighborhoods like this all over the country. And I told him that, you know, it was a very pro-American approach. And Gary was all for that. And he, he had such an affection for Arnold Palmer. You know, he was happy to do it. And I told him the story. One of my favorite stories was that these were the, the Q&As with Kingdom Magazine where I could really banter with him. And I said uh, it was 2013 right. that Gary was posing nude on the cover of ESPN the magazine. Do you remember that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. He was about 73 years old. And, you know, they had strategically placed wow. trophies so you couldn't sure. see it. And he was bragging about his fitness. And I said, and this is how competitive the two of them were. I said, uh, Mr. Palmer, <laughs> Gary Player is nude on the cover of ESPN, the magazine. I said, he's bragging about his fitness routine. He said he never drinks alcohol, never eats bacon, and uh, does about 300 push-ups a day. I said, what is your fitness regimen? Knowing he had none. And he said, he goes, well, I drink right. a lot of one vodka. And he started joking. And then he said, he goes, well... <laughs> He goes, it's good that people are doing what Gary says because that's that's a healthy approach to life. And, you know, he got back on track. And then, But I could see it was still bothering him. So I asked him another question. He was still kind of fidgety. He kind of slept walk through it. I asked him a third question. He kind of was brief. In the middle of the fourth question, he said, oh, and Gary Player eats bacon when no one's watching. Yeah, I, I had a feeling that, uh, that Gary's <laughs> not, uh, you know, yeah. Um, let me ask you yeah. something about Arnold, and, 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 I, and I, I don't want to stray too far uh, away from the book, but um, Arnold obviously had, had played with so many great, um, you know, he sort of led the charge very early on before Nicholas came on, and then, of course, Nicholas uh, hit the road and, and was met with a lot of resistance uh, because Arnold was such a popular figure. Um, but again, yeah. Arnie had a way of sort of, sort of putting his arm uh, around you and bringing you into his fold, if you will, and then suddenly it was like a veil had been lifted, and all of a sudden Jack Nicholas uh, was well on his way. But it was it was a difficult yeah. transition, but Arnold paved the way. Was there anybody on tour during his day that Arnold confided into you and said, "You know what? He was one guy that I played against that I worried about." Um, you mean playing against and, and losing to? Yes. Yes. Uh, no, he, he was so ultra um, competitive and confident. You know, he said that he would hit some of these amazing shots and uh, just think, I, I couldn't believe it didn't go the way I planned it. And, and with Nicholas, it was the same way. That rivalry was so intense and so great. You know, right. there was a couple of times they talked about how 
they were in the clubhouse watching each other, just trying to beat each other. And, and Al Guyberger snuck up and beat them both. And they were like astounded. This <laughs> New Orleans. And they, they were like, how the heck did he come out of nowhere? And they said, I thought it was just you and I. But right. uh, he was so singularly focused. And that competitive streak, again, it never ended. You know, he was always like that. Like, I, I tell the story about the one time with uh, Clint Eastwood. I, we were doing a story about Westerns, and I said, did you know John Wayne? He said, no, but I'm good friends with Clint Eastwood. And he said, we own Pebble Beach together, you know, and I did know that. But And he wasn't right. bragging. They, they bought Pebble Beach for like $899 million in 1999, him and, and Peter Ubroth and another group. He wasn't bragging. He, he was saying, yep. like I say, my wife and I own all th- th- six seasons of Third Rock from the Sun on DVD. You know, you're not bragging. You're just stating right. the fact. And I said, he said, we had dinner with Clint last week. And I said, how's he doing? He said, well, he's like me. We're both 86 years old and both having the same kind of problems. And and this is when, I, when we, were, we were such friends, you know, that we could banter like this. I said, who would win a wrestling match right now between you and Clint Eastwood? And he said, I'd kick his ass. You know, he was so competitive right away. And I, and I, I said, right, and, and then he thought he had said something wrong. And he said, he goes, well, he has a stuntman. He goes, I do my own stunts. <laughs> right. And and I think he's probably telling he was probably telling the truth. Uh, you know, uh, Clint I know was, was. A, was a tough guy, but but Arnie yeah. uh, I think was was as as uh, humble and and sweet as he could be, I think was was pretty tough himself. So, uh he he would have been could a good uh, stunt person to fill in for Sorry, go ahead. If we could have gotten a pay-per-view of that that wrestling match between the two of them, my money whereas oh, would be over forever. To see Clint, an right, 86-year-old Clint right. wrestling and an 86-year-old Arnold Palmer. The whole world would tune in. Oh, for sure. I, I want to talk, and, and, and as, as I know it's difficult for a lot of people, even to this day, to kind of wrap their, their minds around. But, um, you know, we, we saw Arnold, um, you know, later in his life as, as he uh, was sort of unwinding his his uh, professional golf career as a player. You know, we saw him um, at at the Masters and then you know U.S. Opens and and so forth, where he basically was yeah. saying, you know, my my time is up, and and that was a very emotional uh, as we all witnessed in that. Um, yes, but for the fans, it was yeah, it was equally emotional um, and and a little bit sudden in some cases. Everybody, I think, kind of understood that you know Arnold's getting older and and was having some health issues, but. Again, he was very, very private. Talk about his final days a little bit. What you understand um, from from where things went, and some of the the conversations that you had afterwards that people um, yeah. talked about him in general. Yeah, well, well, I saw him six months before he died, and uh, I saw him after that too. But with six months to go before he died, he looked like a man with six months to live. He did not look well at all. He was on a walker. He yeah. had a foot infection. Uh, he'd been hobbled by his, his shoulder that had uh, fall, had broken when he fall, tripped over his dog. And uh, he had a mouthful of infected teeth. He was down to eight teeth. And mm-hmm. at the end, I had a friend of mine was in town, and we, we took a tour of the office. And Doc Giffen, my, my good friend who's been Arnold Palmer's assistant for 50 years, would always say, now, you can't meet Arnold today. You know, he's probably busy or something. He might not be feeling well. But Arnold Palmer never once put up any blockade, he would say, he goes, come on in, I want to meet you guys. And this day, when, when right. anybody with any vanity would have stayed in bed and not come out to meet the public, he was up 
giving a thumbs up to my friend. He couldn't even talk. And it was kind of really right. startling. But, but the uh, the thing was, he got in. They, they helped him out back after he had said hello very quickly. They helped him out back, put his walker in the golf cart, and put him in the driver's seat, and he zoomed off down the road. Now, somebody said, did he have a death <laughs> wish? I said, I said, no, he had a life wish. You know, he was not going to be deterred yeah. by any physical ailments like that. And uh, they called me up about four months later and said, can you do an interview with him? And I said, I, I said, I, I can ask him the questions, but I don't think he's up to the answers. They said, no, they, they assured us he's in good, good enough shape to do that. And so I went in there, and he was very rejuvenated. You know, he looked good, and he was wow. talking. He wasn't on a walker. And I, I thought he was going to make a real turnaround there. And it was a joyful time. You know, I, I wish I'd have given him a big hug. You know, if I'd have known that was the last time I'd have seen him, I'd have, I'd have given him a hug just to say how much he meant to me and, and to so many other people. But uh, he died 35 days after that. He was going mm-hmm. to the hospital, and uh, he always said he wanted to die like his father, of a massive heart attack. And he died going from the, his room to the, to the operating room where they were going to try and save his life. So it was so massive they couldn't save him on the way. Hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's obviously very sad to, to have, lose anybody, um, but especially somebody of his caliber. And I don't mean that from a professional golfer standpoint, right. just as a human being. What are yeah. you going to take away? What, and what did you take away from Palmer that you think will maybe change your life? What, what about him or your experiences with him that have give you pause to think and say, you know what, I want to be a little bit more like that, or I want to do a little more of that in my life. Is there anything that you can think well, of? It's, it's always, you know, I've always been cheerful and positive about the future, but with him, you feel compelled to share that with more people. You know, and like I said, also from the trouble, we had Fred Rogers who was another one of our angels there. And so you had that going on, but, with me, like if someone does me a kindness, I, I write them a letter. I'm very big on writing letters now uh, because I know what he would do. And it, it just means so much more than a text or an email, something people are going to just look at once and throw away. But, uh, and, and again, like I, I really think it's the people in Latrobe that, that put this kind of pressure on you to be nice and not let things go to your head. You know, I'm having some real success with this book, and uh, the people of Latrobe have been just unbelievably supportive of it and, and great about buying it. And uh, I really sit down and listen to their stories, and I, I try and be like an Arnold Palmer apostle. You know, I can't help them with their golf right. games or anything like that, but I can listen to their stories about Arnold Palmer and be touched by them. You know, I, I, I try not to look over somebody's shoulder when they're telling me a story. I try and give them my full attention, eye contact, firm handshake, and I'm trying to make my, my handwriting better so it's more legible like his autograph was too. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's something I need a little work on myself. So, yeah. um, I, I, I signed so many I think books. And I, I know people, there, there's so much in the book about his impeccable handwriting, and I know they go back and look at mine and say, well, this guy sure fails at that one, but, but I'm trying my best. What's the overall message, Chris, that you want people to take away from reading this book? Well, again, I go back to that only a handful of golfers and, and I say that this is not a golf book at all. It's a life book. And only a handful right. of golfers will ever know what it's like to play golf like Arnold Palmer. But every single person on the planet, regardless of money or status, can live like Arnold Palmer. You can treat ch- children and old people kindly. 
you can be patient, you can be friendly, you can be cheerful, uh, you can eat all the bacon you want, like unlike Gary Player, but uh, right. it's just it's just a humi- humility thing. You know, you can be bold yeah. and go for greens and two, and we can all live like he did. That's a, that's a joyful lesson. I I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Um, Chris, how can the folks that are tuning in tonight that would maybe like to get their hands on a copy of the, this book, where where do they need to go, and and what's the best way to get a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon.com, obviously, and uh, Barnes and Noble stocking it. And if you want autographed copies, you can email me at storyteller at chrisrodell.com uh, or at chrisrodell.com website. And I've been sending them all over the country. The great thing about this book is I've had so many people buy 10, 20 at a time. It's it's really been a sensation already. It's only been out for a month, and I've, I've sold so many books just to people in my neighborhood, all these late trade people, and uh, I'm just gratified. And, and I think so much of it is just because people hunger to hear more stories about Arnold Palmer and that a man like that really existed. You know, they, they, that's the question people would always ask you, what was he really like? And for years I would jokingly say he was – Cool, refreshing, and authentic. If Arnold Palmer was a drink, he'd be an Arnold Palmer. But uh, he was just, I I said, if if the greatest generation only had Arnold Palmer, it would still be the greatest generation because of Arnold Palmer. Yeah, he he definitely was, um, I won't say one of a kind, because as you pointed out earlier, I think there's a lot of great people out there that have their own story. Uh, He was obviously become iconic just by, by virtue of, uh, of being more in the public eye, but um, he certainly was somebody um, that we can all aspire to. He had so many great uh, qualities, and I think that that's something, uh, unfortunately, gets lost in today's society with, with just things going on. But um, one final question I'm going to ask you, Chris, and, and that is, uh, do you play golf? Yes, I do. Uh, any tips that uh, Arnold gave you that maybe uh, – you'd like to share? Well, I, I gave minor ones. Most of them dealt with uh, using the putter around the greens instead of chipping. Uh, you've seen pros with chip yips. And he said, if you can putt it, always yep. putt it. But, but the one time, one of the best tips he ever gave me was I was playing Oakmont the next day. And I said, uh, Mr. Palmer, I'm playing the great Oakmont tomorrow. I said, do you have any uh, tips on how I can get a good score? And he said, yes, my tip is play someplace else. <laughs> he, he was right. He had a very yeah. He obviously had a very refreshing sense of humor. That's I love that. I love. Well, that Chris, I want to yeah. Chris, I want to take this opportunity to thank you uh, very much for for joining me this evening on Golf Talk Live. Um, I, I wanted to delve a little bit into the book and, and allow you an opportunity to share some of the stories, but not too much because I want people to go out and read it for themselves. Uh, but thanks for sharing some great stories about uh, the man himself, you, Arnold Palmer. Uh, he truly was um, uh, a very humble man. Um, I won't call him the king, even though that was a title given to him, because I think he was better than that. He was just a, a yeah. decent, genuine human being um, that that deserved uh, a lot of respect, and he certainly has gone yeah. mine uh, over the years. But, but Chris, thank you very much for joining me tonight on, on Golf Talk Live, and, and much continued success with the book. And uh, I hope that uh, you will keep uh, doing your journey in life and that uh, you can draw from from some of the the experiences that you had with Arnold. 
Thank you, Ted. It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you. All right. Have a great evening, and uh, again, much you continued too. success with the book. All right. Thank you. Thank you, friend. Chris. Bye-bye. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was my very special guest tonight uh, on Golf Talk Live, Chris Rodell, um, great uh, writer, speaker, and author of uh, his latest book, Arnold Palmer, uh, Homespun Stories of the King from, of course, Latrobe, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Arnold Palmer's hometown, and uh, just shared some great stories and anecdotes, if you will, uh, of uh, the late Arnold Palmer. Uh, he certainly is missed by many people, uh, not only within the golfing community, uh, but also literally around the world. He, he truly was a, a wonderful man. Uh, again, uh, unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity to meet him face-to-face, as, as Chris and so many others did, um, but I feel in some uh, some small way uh, from watching him as I grew up and, and listening to uh, many of the stories uh, that I've heard over the years and, and here tonight, uh, I feel like I, I got to know a little bit uh, about the man himself, and uh, I've always admired and and uh, respected uh, Mr. Palmer. Um, again, once uh, again, thanks to the guys on the Coach's Corner panel, John Hughes and Peter Egazarian. Thanks, guys, for doing a fantastic job, as always, uh, on the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, always enjoy it. And, uh, again, uh, thanks to uh, my special guest this evening, Chris Rodell, uh, author of Arnold Palmer, Homespun Stories of the King, uh, which you can get a copy by visiting Amazon.com and also uh, check out your local Barnes and Noble. Uh, they're going to be stocking the shelves with that, and I'm sure they're going to be flying off the shelves uh, equally as quick. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in tonight. I hope you enjoyed uh, the show this evening. Uh, I will be back next week, of course, with uh, another great show. I want to take this last opportunity to thank all of you, my listeners, for faithfully tuning in each and every week uh, to the show. And it's really uh, through your uh, listenership and through some of the great guests that have been on, uh, including the talented, many talented coaches, teach professionals, authors, and entrepreneurs that have stopped by the show. And it's really through their participation and guest appearances that have helped to make Golf Talk Live a first-class show. So thank you to all of them. And thank you especially to all of you for tuning in each and every week. Uh, keep, uh, keep things uh, going. I, I uh, always love uh, hearing from you and those that have reached out to me uh, over the years uh, with some thoughts and, and ideas on, on what you'd like to hear. I appreciate that. Keep them coming. Thanks to some of the special sponsors and supporters of the program, Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide, Meredith Kurt from Meredith Kurt Golf out in uh, Myrtle Beach, uh, Nikki and Tiffany Litherland, uh, Mr. Bernie Pinder, owner of OnTicGolf.com, and Sean Kelly, owner of LinkedGolfers.com, and of course my friend over in Ireland, Peter Doyle from Doyle Golf Solutions. Uh, thanks, guys, uh, for all of your continued support of the show. And uh, don't forget to join me next Tuesday uh, as I welcome back my good friend and co-host, uh, LPJ Professional Legends Tour player Cindy Miller will have some catching up to do uh, on the Women of Golf show next Tuesday from 9 to 10 uh, Eastern. Uh, that's AM Eastern here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And again, I will be back next Thursday evening from 6 to 8 with another round of Coach's Corner and another insightful interview with one of my special guests. So make sure you tune in. God bless everybody. Have a great weekend and enjoy uh, the U.S. Open. And happy Father's Day to all of you fathers out there. Have a great one, guys. Bye-bye.